The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Rick Rule, the president and CEO of Sprott U.S. Holdings Incorporated. Mr. Rule is considered one of the top experts on natural resource securities investing. At Sprott, he leads a highly skilled team of earth science and finance professionals who also enjoy a wide reputation for resource investment management. Rick will be joining us very soon on May 3rd and 4th for the Minds and Money Conference in New York City at the Midtown Hilton. We are pleased to have him on the program. Rick Welcome. Ellis, thank you. I enjoy the engagement that we get from your listeners. Well, thank you. You recently participated in a panel with James Rickards and Trey Reich, and the subject matter was something you and I have discussed on this program before, the prospects for gold in a Trump economy. Did you gentlemen come to a consensus? I don't know that we did. We probably came to three separate consensus, which is not uncommon on a panel with fairly strong-willed people. My own conclusions, I think, are that geopolitics are often a narrative that drives short-term moves in the gold price and the arithmetic associated with the deficit and real interest rates are probably the longer-term drivers. I think the other two people on that call probably disagreed with that. You said on that panel that you thought it was amazing that the 10-year yields have maintained elevated levels since the election night. So it's not just the first 100 days, it's almost another 100 days before that. I'm quoting you here, Rick. Anytime 10-year yields have demonstrated a year-over-year increase of 75 basis points, we've had a crisis. I can't refute that at all, and to me, in some regards, it feels a little bit like 2001 before September 11th. When things are seemingly too good to be true, are they too good to be true, Rick? Well, I don't know that I'm picking a crisis necessarily, but what you point out is true. We're in a credit-driven economy. It's worth noting that the Fed raised the interest rate 25 basis points and the market raised the interest rate 100 basis points, which tells me that irrespective of quantitative easing, or as we call it, counterfeiting, irrespective of the surplus liquidity, which has been pumped into the system, that investors in the 10-year are more concerned about the solvency than they are liquidity and demand a 100 basis point increase for parking their money relative to the 25 basis point increase suggested by the Fed. It's worth noting, of course, that the current 10-year yield is extraordinarily low by historic standards. But one wonders, given the inability of the Fed to increase investment spending after six years of manipulating the interest rate lower, what tools they have left in the toolbox. And I think that might be something that's driving indecision in those markets. Do we need any of their tools anymore? I mean, at what point will we become less reliant on the Fed? Well, I personally believe their tools are counterproductive. I personally believe that manipulating interest rates lower is a truly back-asswards policy. It 
rewards spenders at the expense of savers. You cannot spend your way out of insolvency. You have to save or produce your way out of insolvency. And the fact that we spent the last 20 years, really, trying to subsidize the spenders at the expense of the savers seems idiotic to me. That may be because I'm a saver, not a spender. But my own personal preference, and God knows, Ellis, I'm not an economist, I'm a credit analyst, but my own preference would have been to take a brief, hard recession, a reset, and let the market take care of itself. That sort of harsh prescription doesn't seem to work politically for either party. After Jimmy Carter's recessionary years, we had some relief when Reagan became president. And one of the things that happened around 1980, if you recall, is that interest rates were raised, which was a positive marker ultimately for the economy and a way for people to become more comfortable with jumping back into investing. I think what you say is very true. Reagan's great contribution, I think, Reagan and his team's great contribution, was, if nothing else, to change the expectation with regards to inflation. Volcker allowed the interest rate to go to levels that generated positive returns after inflation returns for people who were saving. And that simple act, while it did create a very sharp recession in 80, 81 and into early 82, set the stage for a spectacular bull market across many different industries. It needs to be said, however, lest the Republicans take (laughs) too much comfort in this discussion, that Mr. Reagan also presided over the initiation of the deficit spending, that is the spending in excess of tax receipts that has characterized every administration since. He may be described, in fact was described by Stockman in The Triumph of Politics, as the architect of the fiscal policy that has got us in the position today where collectively at the federal level we owe on balance sheet $20 trillion to each other. Well, that has to wash out somehow. It's just a question of whether or not we can handle a recessionary reset now. I think we have no choice. I think the sooner that we handle it, the less severe the outcome is. The more distorted markets become, my suspicion is the greater the price of the reckoning. Again, I'm not an economist, but I have a difficult time understanding a proposal to deal with a deficit that involves more deficits. My own preference, I think, would be to face the music, but I understand that that's only an academic preference. It isn't going to occur. My fear is that not dealing with it from a policy point of view means that ultimately the way the market deals with it will be even more disruptive. Let's talk about a glaring disparity right now. You spoke earlier about the geopolitical aspects of the gold market being relevant really only in the short term. But a question that I have, which I know I've asked no one about, but I've certainly opined more than once on this program, the disparity between gold equities and the price of the physical metal itself. Gold is at a respectable price of 1250 or thereabouts, where it's been for quite some time. It could go up, it could go down. We can't say for sure. What we can say is that we have many, many gold stocks, good companies, that just don't reflect the value of the metal. Will that ever change? What are your thoughts? Well, that's an absolutely fascinating question from my point of view. The beginning of the outperformance of the metal 
relative to the equities in 2017, I think had to do with the incredible outperformance of the equities themselves in 2016. In 2016, the indexes represented by the big ETFs, the GDX and the GDXJ, were up 60% and 100% respectively when the metal was up 16%. So the equities needed to take a rest relative to the metals. What is interesting to me is that in an environment which isn't necessarily easy for the metals, that is strong U.S. debt markets and a strong U.S. dollar, gold has done remarkably well in 2017. Gold's performance in U.S. dollar terms holding flat against a strong dollar has happened only twice before my career in 1975 and 2002. And in both cases, the consequence of that was that the U.S. dollar rolled over a bit and gold did extraordinarily well afterwards. With regards to the recent strong performance in gold relative to the equities, I think the equities have to play catch up. My suspicion in terms of directly answering your question is that the gold equities markets have become to some degree a prisoner of the two big ETFs. And disintermediation in the ETFs, technical disintermediation, that's a fancy way for saying selling, of the ETFs and the momentum-based selling, particularly of the two times and three times ETFs, the nuggets and dust and things like that, I think has had a disproportional impact on the gold equities market. In other words, the ETF tail is beginning to wag the equities dog. The other thing that's become really interesting to me in the small cap gold equities markets, and by the way, the market now describes small cap as $2 billion or less, the rebalancing of the GDXJ, because the instrument itself, that ETF is so large, it had to go up market in terms of its components has led to a further bifurcation. The first bifurcation being between gold and gold equities. The second bifurcation being equities included in the index and those that are not. There's a tremendous arbitrage in the market now, in the small end of the market, below $2 billion, between index components and non-index components. And I have a couple of suspicions about what we're going to see over the next 12 months. Really three. The first is that gold itself will surprise people to the upside as it has the last two times in my career that gold has done well against the U.S. dollar. One consequence of gold doing well is that the gold equities will finally begin playing catch up. The third thing that I think speculators have to think about is that the valuation disparities between index components and non-index components will over the next 18 months lead to an incredible amount of merger and acquisition activities as companies that are included in the index at high share prices and hence lower cost of capital take advantage of valuation disparities and take over companies that are not included in the index and have lower share prices and hence higher cost of capital. I think this arbitrage, this in-market arbitrage between the index components and the non-index components will be the consequence, the important consequence for investors of this very interesting phenomenon, Ellis, that you just described. I guess I'm speaking to the right person when I ask this question. How heavily is Sprott going to be involved in these mergers and acquisitions as far as funding, financing, making suggestions and recommendations? Tell me what you can and tell me what you can't say. Well, certainly our 
inclination internally has been to find stocks that were improperly priced, both in an absolute sense and also relative to the market. We have been rewarded for that fairly extravagantly of late, uh, as recently, in fact, as yesterday, when Sandstorm announced a takeover offer supported by management of Mariana, a company where we are the largest shareholder. The announcement came at a fairly shocking 80% premium to market. And while we were very proud and are very proud of our Mariana assets, it's gratifying indeed to get an offer of a very large holding and an 80% premium. And certainly rewards like this encourage us and have our clients encouraging us to continue this type of activity. Finding stocks that are at once absolutely cheap relative to their assets and relative to the gold price, but also relatively cheap compared to a select group of strategic companies that could be acquirers. We see the best sub-theme in gold equities right now to be merger and acquisition activities, and we have basically all hands on deck trying to establish who the most undervalued equities are that have obvious strategic acquirers that are index participants. So that makes you directly or indirectly a facilitator. Well, assuming that somebody gives us a fair bid, absolutely. Buying stocks that are selling for less than they're worth is a good strategy in any market. I just think it'll be a particularly good strategy in the next 18 months. Normally, we buy undervalued equities with a four-year or five-year horizon. In our experience, usually gold equities are undervalued because there's some uncertainty around some aspect of the business, some un answered question. And we buy it in anticipation of knowing the possibility or probability that the information will become available to market as a consequence of some action of management. What is happening for us that's beneficial is we see the disparity in valuations leading to a situation where we likely will not need four or five years to realize the value from comparatively undervalued equities. We see a circumstance where as a consequence of these incredible valuation disparities brought about by the index that that we will have the ability to recognize profits where we've selected correctly in the 12 to 18 month time frame, which is obviously more attractive. Well, let's talk about the GDXJ and VanEck, if you will. Do you think that their recent disruptive, I'm going to call it a little bit of a pullback, is strategic in nature in preparation for the next 18 months? First of all, they're competitors of ours, but they're good competitors. They make us better. We have a lot of respect for these people, so I want to get that on the table. I think what happened to the GDXJ XJ is that so many, how would you call it, derivative products, things like the two times and three times ETFs appeared, that people who used to speculate in junior stocks individually to capture volatility in the gold equities markets began to use the ETFs as a surrogate for building portfolios. That's not a poor decision on individual investors and some institutional investors' points in terms of their thinking. The ETF, theirs and ours, are efficient because there's more liquidity in the ETF than there is in individual stocks and you have less single company failure. But like any good idea, the strategy became overbought to the extent that the GDXJ began to drive the market rather than the market driving the GDXJ. The consequence of that as the GDXJ became larger is that they exceeded their own internal limits on how much of each position they could own. 
And rather than being a junior index, they sort of blew themselves up and they had to go up market. That is, they had to rebalance their index from what they were intended to do, which is juniors, really up into the intermediates to the point that at one point in time, 15% of their assets were invested in their sister product, the GDX, which is in fact a large cap ETF. Uh, (laughs) It's a circumstance that I haven't seen before in my investing career. My suspicion is that, you know, we ourselves at Sprott with our own product, the SGDJ or our own junior ETF, will look to capture the space below the space that the GDXJ now inhabits. Natural market phenomenon and healthy for all concerned. That is absolutely fascinating material. Incredible. I look forward to visiting with you in just a few days for Minds and Money in New York, where you'll be speaking and visiting with companies, investors, and listeners. What do you think we'll hear from you this year that we haven't heard in previous years? I'd also like to add that this is the first Minds and Money conference in the U.S. in the 13-year history of the organization. Well, first of all, Ellis, I guess this is an unbridled commercial for Minds and Money. I've gotten a lot out of Minds and Money over the years, and the opportunity for North American investors, at least sophisticated investors, to attend a Minds and Money event in this hemisphere is, I think, extraordinarily attractive. The second thing is that I think it's extremely topical for right now, because if I'm right about the M&A activity between index components and non-index components. Many of those non-index components will be exhibiting at Minds and Money. It'll be like potentially walking through a buffet of takeover targets, which is from my point of view, incredibly, incredibly topical for the next 12 months and beyond topical, likely profitable. I've never Uh, heard you say anything like that before, (laughs) anybody for that matter, a a buffet of takeover targets. (laughs) That's sort of how I see it. You know, big conferences, well-attended conferences, conferences that have knowledgeable attendees often separate the wheat from the chaff in the sense that the lower quality companies know that it isn't to their benefit to attend and the higher quality companies know it is to their benefit to attend. I think the fact that companies have the courage to exhibit in front of a sophisticated audience like the audience that they see at Minds and Money in some senses self-segregates the companies that are exhibitors. And I think that sort of confluence of high quality exhibitors and the market opportunity that we described on your show today makes attendance for those people who can do it. How do I say this? Just a very, very good idea. And again, you're talking about the disparity between gold, the metal and gold stocks, correct? Not just gold equities and precious metals, but also index components and non-index components. I mean, in effect, we have three simultaneous arbitrages taking place right now. The fact that gold has done well in U.S. dollar terms, which often means in the subsequent year it does even better, then the disparity between the gold performance and the performance of the gold equities as a whole, and then the outperformance of the index components relative to the non-index components, and the chance for mergers and acquisitions to reduce that arbitrage delta. I see this as a really interesting confluence of three very powerful trends. We certainly could go on, Rick, but let's save it for another conversation. Very soon, I hope. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for joining me today in the program. My pleasure, if I may. I'd like to offer your listening audience the opportunity, the no obligation opportunity, if they would like to, to email me their natural resource portfolios, and I will give them an absolutely no obligation 
ranking of the resource stocks in their portfolios. If people would email me in the text, not as an attachment, their natural resource portfolios, including names and symbols, they can email me at rrule, that's R-R-U-L-E, at sproutglobal.com. I will, by return email, rank their resource holdings and have comments associated with each holding. Note, these will not be investment recommendations because I don't know your listeners as clients and can't give them recommendations. These will be company rankings, not investment recommendations. But I look forward to interacting with your listeners. Again, Rick, thanks for joining me today. A pleasure. Always a pleasure. I've been speaking with Rick Rule, the president and CEO of Sprott U.S. Holdings Incorporated. Learn more about Sprott Global by visiting their website, SprottGlobal.com. Be sure to join Rick and myself at the Minds and Money New York Conference at the Midtown Manhattan Hilton May 3rd and May 4th. You've heard Rick say that this promises to be quite an event for investors. We hope to see you there. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ellis Martin. High quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a discussion with James McDonald, President and CEO of Kootenay Silver. Kootenay Silver trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol KTN. Kootenay is a Canadian and Mexican-based silver exploration company actively engaged in the development of three major projects in Mexico, including the La Cigarra Silver Project in Chihuahua, Mexico, and the Promontorio and La Negra Silver Projects in Sonora State, Mexico. The company has a leading growth profile, highlighted by one of the largest silver asset bases in Mexico and a carried interest to commercial production with a world-leading mining partner. Kootenay Silver currently has two drill programs in progress in Mexico and a combined 43101 silver asset base of over 140 million ounces of contained silver. Forward-looking statements may be included going forward. Jim, welcome back to the program. Yeah, glad to be back. What's been happening in Mexico lately? What can you tell us? Well, there's lots of activity on the ground there uh, preparing for the next drill program that is uh, about to start here in several days. It's the beginning of drilling for the rest of this season. So we're going to see upwards of up to um, 15,000 meters drilled on La Segura in two parts. One part directed at defining the limits of the current resource, it's open on both strike directions and the depth. So we want to finish doing that job. And then uh, we're also mapping in detail all the peripheral targets outside of the resource, of which are at least 11 zones, so we can get an understanding of how to prioritize them and then begin drilling them later in the year. So we have lots of drilling going on, potential for new discoveries on these peripheral zones, and then this potential for expanding the size of the deposit. Along with this, over the past few months, we've been doing a lot of hard work on relogging the cores from the resource itself and refining the resource model. We're doing a lot of work on that with the hopes of developing a more precise geologic model that could lead to a great improvement on the current resource. So all of this work will culminate toward the end of the year and put us in a position to be able to have a resource update and put a timeline on a preliminary economic assessment. So lots of exciting stuff going on at La Cigarra. Then at the Promontorio Project, Pan American is going to be back drilling in June, July. They've got a 6,500 meter 
program there, and they're expecting to put out a maiden resource on the La Negra discovery this year. So there's going to be plenty of drilling and lots of news coming up this year. So it's going to be a very exciting year for us. So there's every indication, of course, this is speculation on my part, that we'll continue to see high grades at La Cigarra, Promontorio, and La Negra. Pan American is going to be drilling at La Negra again and doing a maiden resource there. They're also going to be drilling some additional targets in the immediate area. And yeah, I would expect that we would see more good grading results out of La Negra like we've always done. As for La Cigarra, we're focusing on what controls the best grades there, the high grades, and focusing in on following those and drilling the deposit off. You know, we want to do two things there. We want to finish defining the size of the deposit and we want to start testing all these other peripheral zones and make some new discoveries there. That's where we're going. And then leading into a new resource update for La Cigarra. And then at that point, we can look at our data and decide what an intelligent timeline for a preliminary economic assessment looks like and get the whole project moving down that path of preliminary economic assessment on and onward. What do you see for the fall once you get the resource updates that you're hoping for and into 2018? Yeah, we'll be drilling all the way through the fall. There'll be drilling programs going here right to the end of the year. And then we'll be looking to do the resource update at the end of the year. Jim, it's always a pleasure. Jim, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for joining me today on the program. Thank you, Ellis. I've been speaking with James McDonald, the president and CEO of Kootenay Silver, trading as K-O-O-Y-F in the U.S. and K-T-N on the TSX Venture Exchange. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Once again, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Gordon Neal, Vice President of Corporate Development for Silvercorp Metals, trading in the U.S. as SVMLF and on the TSX as SVM. Silvercore is a low-cost silver-producing Canadian mining company with multiple mines in China. The company recently commenced commercial production at its GC project in southern China. The company's vision is to deliver shareholder value by focusing on the acquisition of underdeveloped projects with resource potential and the ability to grow organically. Gordon, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Now, Silvercorp isn't your typical Canadian junior mining company. There's much less drilling and very little investor dilution. Quick to production since the start of the company, more or less. It's really a great revenue model that's been based all along on the high grades at the Ying Mine. Dr. Rufang, his approach is more entrepreneurial than most other mining companies. Canadian mining companies typically will go out, drill, make a discovery, try to make it bigger, go to the market for more money to make it bigger. That model works. But what that does is it creates dilution for most shareholders. Whereas Rui went out and within the first three years of Silvercorp being a public company, generated $30 million in revenue in the third year by taking direct shipping ore and just shipping it to the smelter. So that minimizes dilution for shareholders because he didn't have to go back to the market for more capital because he created his own. His model is to get into production as fast as you possibly can to minimize dilution and all the assets that we're looking at right now, that model will apply. So that has to be the model going forward. You mentioned you're looking for assets. Are they going to be in China? outside of China? And how do you find a project like the Ying Mine? How do you do that globally? He also is a geologist. He's a PhD in geology. So what he's found is that most 
Canadian mining company and most companies in the world, as I said, take a high-grade discovery, which they brought to the market to capitalize. And then once they start drilling, to go back to the market, they usually have to take the low-grade material and spread the tons across the grade, which drops the grade. And by looking at the geology, he seems to be able to find, uh, he calls treasure boxes or, or high-grade pods that can actually be mined fairly quickly. They have to be close to surface or have to be accessed easily. So he'll find those, and that's the kind of assets that we're looking for. Where those assets, if you look at the 43101 of the resource holistically, the grades have dropped, but the tonnage has gone up. But if you remodel, he goes in and remodels 43101 to look at the specific high-grade areas. And if he can get a high-grade area that can deliver $50 million in profits for a company every year for at least $50 million for seven years, five to seven years, then he thinks it's worth going after those kinds of assets to create profits for Silvercorp. I understand that we can't get into specifics, but has Dr. Feng identified potential acquisition targets? Yes, we've identified probably right now we're quite busy here with the cash we have in the bank and we've probably identified 10 of those and we almost had one but a larger mining company very large mining company came in and just scooped it on us we're a little bit disappointed by that but there are lots more again you mentioned organic or inorganic growth we're looking in asia china has been to buy properties in a lot of the mining companies have now have large market caps and have larger wallets so they're actually bidding them up but organically we could grow in our own area around where our mine is currently exists and that would be a good way to grow organically because it would allow us to sort of reach out just beyond our borders, so the borders of the Ying mine particularly, where we're looking and we're active. And we could use the existing infrastructure, which wouldn't cost us that much more money and wouldn't dilute shareholders, and that's one way to go. And we are looking actively there. And the other way to go would be to go inorganically or outside of China. We're looking in Asia, like in Mongolia and Cambodia. We're also looking in South America, Central America, and Mexico. So it would require, again, a little bit more time to develop those particular assets. But as I said, the assets he goes after, the model is to get into the production with a time frame of, of a maximum of 24 months. So that means it's got to have either infrastructure that we are buying with it or infrastructure nearby we can utilize. He's about making profits. But you've got the cash to really do that, don't you? Well, we've got almost $100 million in cash. We have an asset that looks like we may get another $100 million for. We'll make $50 million this year after tax. We have access to other capital, so we don't want to use it all up. I mean, we are paying a dividend to our shareholders, and that may, that dividend may increase. If we don't find something that's accretive, then we'll look at increasing that dividend because we like to, the shareholders should get some of that money. But yeah, we're well capitalized. So our listeners, shareholders, and potential investors in your company should just pay attention and look for news regarding that potential. We will probably pull the trigger on an acquisition within the next 12 months. Let's talk about the silver market in general. With all the global growth, there's much less speculation and more use of the metal per se with perhaps the market reflecting that. Silver is an industrial metal, obviously, and one of the things that's happening that seems to be driving some of the industrial growth faster than other sectors is photovoltaics or um, solar panels. And China is one of the biggest producers, I think, if not Germany was, but I think China has now taken over as the largest producer of photovoltaics and at the lowest price point. What I've read is it's driven down the cost of alternative energy. We have a situation in BC right now where there's an election going on and the current premier is pushing. I'm not going one way or the other. I'm 
how to vote here, but, but she's pushing the site C Dam. And I heard last night that the alternative energy here with wind and solar really makes the model of building the site C Dam not obsolete, but it really changes the economics of it if you're looking for alternative energy. And that really comes as a result of the drop in the cost of solar and wind. In China, we use a lot of silver in these photovoltaics. That's part of where the rise in the industrial use of the silver is right now. What do you think about the Van Eck Fund or the GDXJ effect on the market? I've been getting a lot of calls from distraught shareholders who seem to actually, I'm actually quite impressed by our shareholder base and most shareholders in general. Some people don't give them enough credit, but boy, they certainly understand market and do their homework these days with the information you can get off the internet. But they call and say, look, we know it's not your fault, really. This is this GDXJ readjusting, but boy, how long do you see this going on? I don't know the answer. I mean, Van Eck is our largest shareholder in the of the, the GDXJ. And it affect, it's a really severely affected our share price uh, negatively because they're having to rebalance this fund. But uh, as one of the, my investors called me, he says, well, a rising tide lifts all boats, but a uh, lowering tide does the same thing. So we're all lifting and lowering at the same time. And I just hope that they can readjust this thing. I don't know whether the regulators should get involved in terms of something, a fund this size can, that could have that much of an effect when it has to readjust itself uh, an average of 5%. It's quite dramatic in the marketplace, but at least we know why it's happening, and, and that should give us at least some common sense. Having said that, though, the valuation of your stock and what you're doing there in China, I'm speculating here, and it's a forward-looking statement, there's potentially some great value moving ahead. We think that with the resource that we just put out, that we've been mining there for almost 12 years and replaced every single ounce of silver that we take it out. So we've still got another 20 years of mine life at 300 grams per ton. Now, the 300 grams per ton, according to the new resource, we will be mining for the next seven years. So if silver stays at this particular current price, we'll be making you know an average of 50 to $60 million after tax a year for the next eight years. And of course, I can't comment on whether the silver price will stay where it is, but I always have hope. I'm a half glass full kind of guy. But even having said that, at 300 grams per ton, what high grade does is mitigate against the vagaries of those price fluctuations against other of our peer group that don't have that kind of grade because when you don't have grade and the price goes down you're not going to make money so for us in the future with the kind of head grade that we have we're looking at good growth and steady growth and we're hoping to add growth with new acquisitions and just one quick point the cost of producing silver for silver corp all in sustaining cash costs is a dollar 87 an ounce for the last quarter for the last nine months it's been about three dollars and 89 cents if you add in the byproduct credits, lead and the zinc, because lead and zinc has really gone up in the last few months. It's a negative number, negative $2.88. Since I don't really like to use a negative number, that's fine. At $1.87 and $3.86 when you've got $18 silver. And we're at the front of the pack in, in the cost curve, how low our costs are. I'm happy with that. Well, Gordon, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to visiting with you at the Minds and Money New York conference coming up on May 3rd and 4th. Thanks for joining me today on the program. Thanks, Elvis. I've been speaking with Gordon Neal, Vice President of Corporate Development for Silvacorp Metals, trading in the U.S. as SVMLF and on the TSX as SVM. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Who are the small companies with big opportunities? Find an assortment of potential investment opportunities. Start by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Michael Sweatman, President and CEO of Eureka Resources Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol EUK and in the U.S. as ERKAF. Eureka Resources is an exploration stage company in the business of the acquisition, exploration, 
and evaluation of gold properties located in the province of British Columbia and in the Yukon Territory of Canada, as well as lithium in the state of Nevada. Forward-looking statements may be made. Mike, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be here. If you wouldn't mind, give us some background on Eureka Resources. Well, the company was founded in 1981, and it was founded to develop what we call now the FG Project, then called Fraser Gold. It was founded by a prominent Vancouver entrepreneur, Mr. Jack O'Neill. He founded the Coast Hotel chain, actually. The company worked on this property or had joint venture partners work on this property since 1981 and has spent over $15 million have been spent by various joint venture partners over the years. The project and the company was basically dormant when current management group took over in June of 2015. And we tidied a few things up and optioned out the FG property to Canark Resources. Canark, you may know, is run by Brad Cook, also of Endeavor Silver. So they're a very, very prominent and strong group, and we expect them to they'll be spending half a million dollars this summer in the Caribou region. Our projects to date cover three distinct regions, Nevada, Yukon, and the Caribou area of British Columbia. Tell us more about the lithium property in Nevada. Our property is a real raw exploration project located about 40 miles southeast of the Clayton Valley. Now, the Clayton Valley is quite famous. It's the only producing lithium property in the United States. And with the rise to prominence of Tesla and the Tesla Gigafactory being built near Reno, Nevada, this was a really good prospect for us. And we hope to drill this property later on in the summer. It's a really, really good exploration prospect. Would you keep that in Eureka, or would you potentially spin that out, or you don't know right now until you do? We don't really know. I mean, we're hoping to be successful, obviously, and if we are successful, then there'll be some decisions as to made as to whether we go forward with the project or we try to monetize it. We took on the project as a defensive measure in June of 2016 when the price of gold looked like it was going to 800 Of course, we purchased the property, and immediately the price of gold went up. So it's turned out to be sort of an add-on that's not the prime focus of the company. So we'd like to drill it, find out what we've got, and then make some decisions about the property. It's interesting because you've selected projects in two areas that experienced gold rushes in the past. The Caribou District in British Columbia all the way back to the 1850s and the Yukon in the 1890s. That's really what we tried to do. We made a strategic decision to go after gold in areas where gold has been found before. We find that that's a pretty good starting point for this. And the Yukon, of course, with the 1898 gold rush and the Caribou with gold rushes in the late 1850s, early 1860s. So we have three properties in the Caribou District, previously noted the Fraser Gold or FG Project, as we call it. We have our Gold Creek Project, which is located adjacent to the Spanish Mountain Deposit, which recently released a preliminary economic assessment, and our recently acquired CKN project, which is right next to the Gibraltar copper mine in central British Columbia. So that's good. Going where gold and resources have been found before. I'm sorry, uh, are you looking for copper too? We're actually looking for gold. Interestingly enough, the Gibraltar copper mine doesn't have any gold in it, but the property that we've acquired quite close to them does have indications of gold in soil samples. So we think we may be on to either a different phase of the mineralization or something that's caused the gold to come 
to our particular location, but we are right next to their property. We're seeing recent interest in the Yukon as some of the majors are coming in and acquiring or doing joint ventures before any of these junior companies even think about going into production or further developing their resources. They're almost automatic targets. Is that what you're hoping for? This is exactly what we're looking for. I mean, the Klondike White Gold Dawson Range area. The source of the Klondike gold has never been found. We're, of course, that's one of the motivations for looking at. There is gold in the creeks that drain our properties or are adjacent to our properties in the Yukon. Gold in the creeks had to come from somewhere, usually upslope. The natural riffles that created by streams and stuff create the placer mines, but the hard rock source of this gold is really what we're looking for. You know you have placer, but you're looking for the hard rock. Absolutely. I mean, we don't have any placer claims. There's two different types of claims. There's the placer claim, which is from surface down to the bedrock, and then there's the hard rock claims, which underlie that. It's not necessary that the gold will be found in the same exact area as the gold because over the millennia the gold has arrived at the creek bottoms through natural erosion processes. So hopefully we can find a source of that gold. Which project are you most excited about right now? They're all at different stages. I would suggest that the Gold Creek project or our Fraser Gold project certainly is the most advanced. It has a million ounce resource. It's broken down as measured and indicated resource of 376,000 ounces and 634,900 furred ounces at that property. So it's definitely further along. And that's the reason that we optioned it to Canark was because they're going to spend some money and try and expand the resource quite intensive drilling is going to be involved and the cost for us was just going to be prohibitive in terms of dilution. So we've taken on some projects that are a little bit less advanced, Gold Creek being probably our most advanced of the remaining projects and that being right next to a resource at Spanish Mountain. And then we have our Yukon projects where there's gold in the creeks, but there's been really not a whole lot of work done on those properties. And what our intention is, is to fly an airborne survey over those Yukon projects to try to develop some targets where we can go in on the ground. But we'll fly over those projects this early part of the summer and hopefully we'll develop some targets to go after on the ground later on and towards the end of the exploration season. What sort of news flow do you expect over time? Newsflow will be announcing commencement of work, and as results are available, we'll certainly provide them. It's a pretty unique thing that we're going to be drilling on three different properties, one in Nevada. Secondly, in the Gold Creek project, we intend to drill a couple of holes, and Canark will be drilling extensively on our FG projects. So there'll be a significant amount of news flow probably towards the later part of the summer and into the fall because I think Canark's not actually going to start their program till sometime in early August. We hope to get onto the Gold Creek project earlier than that in late May or early June. We have to do some assessment work in order to hold on to the claims. We'll have news flow pretty steadily throughout the summer. Some of it will be more exciting than others and hopefully we have some discoveries because we have the potential to make discoveries. We've got Nevada with the lithium project. We've got Gold Creek drilling. And then later on in the summer, the FG project will be drilled. So there'll be lots of work when we do our airborne survey, which we're in the process of trying to find some fuel caches. We'll be caching fuel for the helicopter survey, which will be coming hopefully later in May. There'll be steady news flow throughout the summer. What does your share structure look like? We have currently 38 million shares outstanding. More than 20% of it is held by management and by directors. We're in good shape as far as that goes. Everybody's committed. The rest of the shares rest 
guest with original shareholders as far back as 1981. And in fact, I've had calls from some of those old shareholders. Oh, my dad's been dead for 25 years. And we found out because you sent out proxy materials that we own some shares. How many do we own? There's been a little bit of that go on too. So this share structure is quite tight. Hoping to get some more interest in the company by talking to people like yourself. Where are you trading at lately? Well, we've been trading in the nine or 10 cent range, which I think is fair for what we've got. We've got a market cap of about $3.8 million. It won't take much, I think, to add value to that. Whether the market reflects it is one thing, but certainly we feel that we have the ability to add significant value if we have successful programs. Well, Mike, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. We'll look for news as you have it in future broadcast. Thanks for joining me on the program. Well, thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Michael Sweatman, President and CEO of Eureka Resources Incorporated, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol EUK and in the U.S. as ERKAF. Forward-looking statements may have been made. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com. Who are the small companies with big opportunities? Find an assortment of potential investment opportunities. Start by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin reporting for Minds and Money Asia in Hong Kong and the Ellis Martin Report, and I'm sitting with Jayant Bandari, who's a financial analyst and author and writer covering the resource sector, covering technology, and really with opinions about uh, politics and democracy and or the lack of it there in the world. Giant, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks very much for having me here, Alice. I don't know where to begin. You're a wealth of knowledge. I think my first question to you is, do you think democracy is going to survive overall on planet Earth? Well, democracy should not survive. Democracy is the worst kind of political system in my view. Every country peaks when it adopts democracy and then it becomes mob rule as time passes by. In my view, most of the Western countries culturally peaked before they became democratic and since then they have been increasingly becoming mob-ruled countries. Perhaps you would be most supportive of either a benevolent dictatorship and I don't know of another word, or let's say the the government in China, is that more suitable to uh, something sustainable over time? Ideally, I don't believe in the concept of the government. However, I would not try to change governance of any country. The world has tried democracy all over Africa, all over the Middle East and South Asia. And they have been disasters after disasters. And also in South America, they become democratic, then they become dictatorships, then they become horrible military dictatorships, and then they revert back to democracy. What you want to do is to let them grow, evolve themselves the way their culture allows them to evolve. Let China evolve by itself. China has done extremely well as a non-democratic country. So has Singapore and Hong Kong. With a country that has a population of over a billion people or a billion and a half people, democracy definitely cannot work. Firstly, it would not work in China because that's not how Chinese think. It hasn't worked in in India, Alice, and most people fail to understand that. It's a complete 
and massive chaos that India is today, democracy has become a rule run by a bunch of junkies in that country. Was India better off under British rule then? Absolutely. I would have begged English to stay back in India if I had the capacity to do so. India was English installed institutions of liberty and rule of law in that country. My grandfather used to tell me that when he went to pay his income tax during the British rule, the English officer would come and see him off at the gate of the building. Nothing like that happens anymore. You are abused today by the income tax officers and you have to bribe at every step today. So the English parliamentary system and the monarchy work in large degree all over the world? Well, English colony worked as long as English were running those institutions. Those institutions worked very well, but you have to have the British running those institutions. Without them, those institutions have become hollow structures in all of Africa, all of the Middle East, all of South Asia, most of South America. In India, the three arms of the government are indistinguishable from each other. It has be increasingly become a tyranny as time has passed by. What is the future of India, let's say, in the during the next five to ten years? What do you see in your own crystal ball giant? Well, I can see very clearly that India is increasingly becoming a major chaos. In my view, it's an unnatural country. Eventually, it will disintegrate into very small countries because these people can't really keep that entity together. It's my impression, and I'm a North American like you are now, it's my impression that India had a very abundant sustainable growing economy but it's my thinking going back to the 80s and 90s or what it is not it's completely erroneous understanding alice let's look at the numbers indian economy per capita gdp is 1718 dollars that is lower than per capita gdp of africa even if you exclude south africa india is more poor than africa is now india has been growing for a, at a good rate for the last 3 decades but the reality is most of these emerging markets benefited from internet. They were able to rapidly import Western technology. But these countries haven't really culturally changed. And in my view, India is very rapidly reverting to the normal, which is the Hindu rate of growth, a very low economic growth rate and all dependent on free gift of Western technology. What does agriculture look like in India? Is there enough food to sustain that population after an economic collapse, which you're forecasting? There is for now enough food, but I think India is again rapidly going in the wrong direction. Remember, 75% of Indians operate in the agricultural and associated industry, which basically to you and me mean that about 73% of these people are unemployed. Because in modern technology, you only need about 2% of the population to work in agricultural sector. Now, there is enough food in the country, but Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi demonetized 86% of the cash in circulation in November 2016. That has resulted into a major crisis because farmers cannot buy seeds. They can't sell food because people don't did not have cash to buy food. People were no longer shopping, which meant that small businesses were failing. And this vicious cycle in is now ongoing in the country. In my view, a major part of the economy in India is failing, despite the fact, Alice, that currently Indian government is showing annualized growth rate of 7%.
I actually don't see any growth anywhere in the country right now. Are there any opportunities in India right now, business opportunities for foreigners? I personally don't invest in the country and I advise people not to invest in the country for two reasons, Alice. The return on my investment is very low and the business risk is very high. It's not worth my money. Would you say that most of the money in India is expatriate, diaspora money, investing uh, that has left the country? Indians prefer not to take their money back to the country. Remember, India is a very small economy on per capita basis. Again, $1,700 per capita, 50% of Indians don't have toilets. 50% of Indian children are stunted. Yes, I did say 50% of Indians don't have toilets, even today. 50% of 80-90% of Indians do not live in decent housing. Maybe half, more than half of Indians don't actually have proper housing. It's a mess, that country. There's no solution then. I think the it's a tribal country. It's a very irrational and superstitious country. And I think it must get disintegrated into tribal entities to make this country work, that geographical entity work. Let's shift over to Hong Kong right now. The British effectively left here in 1997 for all intents and purposes. How has the city changed? What opportunities are gone? And what new opportunities have existed over the last 20 years? I spent a fair bit of time, as you know, Alice, in Asia, in Hong Kong, and in Singapore. I love these two countries. These are city-states, and they have stayed very free market-oriented. Because the British stayed here long enough and because these are city-states they have retained a lot of British institutions and I like China China has benefited from involving itself with Singapore and Hong Kong and Taiwan now you advise and consult institutional investors all over the world what are you excited about right now and what are you propagating with regard to potential high margin return on investment I still continue to like Hong Kong Singapore China South Korea and Japan. I think these are stable countries and there is actually economic growth taking place in China. It's the only country among the emerging markets that I feel very confident about, which is China, in terms of sustainability of growth going forward. And one final question. What are you seeing with regard to Chinese and Asian investment in North American opportunities? Chinese are doing the right thing. They are diversifying their money outside China. China is relatively new country. They have historically not diversified their money. They are buying a lot of properties in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the U.S. And I think this is an outcome of the fact that they have been focused solely on China in the modern history. So now they are diversifying. They are doing the right thing. It does not necessarily reflect badly on China. Giant Bandari, author and investment analyst, thank you so much for joining us today on the program. Thank you very much, Alice. I'm Ellis Martin reporting for Minds and Money Asia in Hong Kong and the Ellis Martin Report. We again thank you for joining us today. Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Once again, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin, and here's my unsolicited advice for you today. If you're helping friends who are doing nothing to help themselves, stop it right now. You're not really helping them. You're enabling them to continue whatever behavior they're maintaining that requires your assistance. Now, if these individuals are completely helpless and have no ability to help bring themselves up, that's something else entirely. I'm not talking about mentally or physically handicapped friends. I'm referring to those individuals in relatively good health that for whatever reason have become financially and emotionally dependent on you with no measurable return 
on your own time or money contribution. They may be draining you and you don't really realize it. They may be affecting your own health and you may not consciously know it. But step back and think about it. Habits like these, and I mean your enabling habits, not theirs, might be something on the surface that seems right and comfortable and the correct thing to do. Chances are that you're really not helping them and you're certainly not helping yourself. What is the cost emotionally, physically, and financially? I don't know. I'm not you. But you can figure it out. Now, it might be that these folks are truly survivors. After all, they are surviving with your help right now. They know what to do to keep food on the table and a roof over their head. They'll find it with someone else or they'll make progress on their own as long as you're not enabling them. If any of this is harming you, then move them along down the road. If it gives you great immeasurable pleasure. That's something else entirely. Keep enjoying the relationship. I'm only offering you perspective today and not a direct suggestion or order. The most important action we can take is to take care of ourselves first. Protect our lives and the length of them. Look at your circle of friends, your close circle. Who makes you happy? Who brings you down? There's always someone new and unknown in this big world who might cheerfully take the place of someone in your inner circle that's not making you feel good. Switch that person out with someone who contributes to your happiness and your well-being. Thanks for listening. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 